This is the Sure Skills Learn to Grow podcast. My name is Simon Bean. I am the host. And this week I'm talking to Carl Meta, the CEO of Edcast, one of the hottest companies in learning technology and widely hailed as one of, if not the top learning platform on the market. As you'll hear in the conversation, Carl left his role as a venture capitalist to build Edcast from the ground up. And we talk about the origin story of Edcast, which is really interesting. We also do a deep dive on Edcast's role as a quote-unquote knowledge cloud and what that means. And we talk about the power of data and its role in the future of learning. This was a super enjoyable conversation. Carl is a really interesting, innovative thinker. We talk about a wide range of industry trends, and I think there'll be some great takeaways for you guys. Here is Carl Meta. So, hi, Carl. Hi. Hi, Simon. How's it going? How are things out in Silicon Valley? Good, good. Uh, it's, it's a nice time here now. We've got the air cleaner. Uh, it's uh, clear skies uh, from the some of the fires that we saw last few months. That was unfortunate, but uh, things are getting better. Yeah, I am in the mountains of North Carolina on the other side of the country. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you guys are, are staying safe and things are, are trending positive. Yeah. So listen, let's start off. I, last year in 2019, I was one of the lucky 300 uh, to attend the, the Future of Work conference out in Stanford there. And I was blown away by just the, you know, the physical location. Obviously, Stanford is spectacular. I think it was such a perfect place for the ethos of the conference, particularly with Stanford's background in innovation and you know, right there in the heart of Silicon Valley. How was it taking something like that that was so successful and trying to move the whole thing online? Yeah, well, thank you. And thanks for uh, attending last year. It was an amazing event. We've been doing it for uh, five years. So today, this year was the sixth year. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, kind of bringing the best of the minds together in one location. So I love conferences. So we actually started doing our annual conferences in the year one of founding our company, which is quite uh, unusual for a company which has just started and like doing its own conference. So <laughs> and we love Stanford because that's where we started. So love the campus feeling, and you know it just just makes your uh, it makes you feel like your IQ just went up by a few not just by being there, <laughs> looking at the looking at the nice building and the environment and all the all the smart people and all that stuff. So, so I love to go there. Um, yeah, so look, this year was a challenge. I mean, we want uh, people to come and meet physically. Uh, it's, that is always a great um, uh, interaction when you meet face to face. Nothing beats face to face. You know, I'm a, probably an old-fashioned uh, person who, who likes to touch and feel and you know meet people. Uh, but I think we all have to adjust and adapt more and more to this uh, new environment, the new normal. And uh, there are some positive things about uh, doing it digital. Uh, first thing was that, you know, this year when we started planning and we, we put together a whole virtual conference and, uh, I don't know if you, you attended this year, did you attend? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we, we made sure one of the things that it was not like the same boring, uh, zoom type thing. We had like an actual 3d virtual environment, just so that you can feel like the buildings and the <laughs> kind of like the, the big windows and, um, actual, some people walking around. Uh, like a video game feeling, right? There was an auditorium and all that. So, so the people loved that environment. We got a lot of great feedback about it that they felt yeah. like you know they were connected. 
but the most important thing was that you know there's a, the infinite capacity uh, pretty much that you can bring in so at stanford uh, the largest hall size can only accommodate 300 people after which they'll call the the fire marshals so <laughs> we had to always limit although you know we could generally get a thousand people who wants to come in but we had to always limit it to invite only to 300 um so this year we are almost like we brought in 1500 uh, people that was fantastic so it's almost like five times or you know regular year uh, mm. so making it accessible digit digital uh, that's the advantage of digital that you can scale uh, pretty much uh, you know in, infinitely to some extent uh, we could have brought in even 10000 but we were also worried about the bandwidth <clears throat> because people are working from home and uh, this was our first time even to bring in 1500 people and you know it's live and uh, the speakers are also at their home and uh, our home internet is now used by you know your your other family member and the kids <laughs> so the bandwidth is all you know distributed uh, compared to an office location commercial buildings have you know much more fiber to the building compared to your home so i think uh, with all that constraint i think it was fantastic uh, we as you saw two days uh, 35 plus speakers all amazing speakers and uh, you know uh, great participants a lot of engagement uh, so we would love to do it next year, obviously, post-COVID, uh, again, back to face-to-face. -face. But I think we learned some important lesson, and uh, we might do it next year kind of like a hybrid. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's the way to go. I feel that, uh, you know, you do the, the digital to make it accessible to, like, thousands of people so that everybody can participate because there's always going to be a limitation to travel budgets and or, or travel conflict, right, uh, or, you know, even finding a hotel in the Valley, uh, so we might do both. That's what we've kind of learned that, hey, we love a lot of things about the physical aspect of just hanging out with people. And then we love certain aspects of the digital. Uh, so next year is going to be fantastic to to try to uh, design something which is hybrid. I've heard the origin story of EdCast began with, with a frustration you had about not having knowledge at your fingertips. Uh, how much truth is there to that? And, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I was uh, I was not in the learning space. So I had no idea what it, and even an LMS is. Um, if you would have asked me what is an LMS, I would have told you it's a last man standing uh, <laughs> learning management system. I had no idea. Uh, so my um, real interest in uh, even building something like EdCast was um, I was a venture capitalist at uh, Menlo Ventures. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, this is my I saw the T-shirt, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, as a as an engineer and has been an entrepreneur before, I was like getting very frustrated with with my daily job at Menlo, because uh, my day job is like you know I'm you know, like sitting in the office all day, uh, nothing to do because you're a venture firm, you're not like building stuff, right? So <laughs> all you do is like waiting for entrepreneurs to come in and pitch you, and we go to the conference room and listen to them three times a day. And uh, during uh, those meetings, uh, there's a lot of things that I don't understand because, you know, I completed my engineering 25 years back. So I I'm not up to date with all the tech stuff. And, you know, generally investing in uh, cutting edge tech, like somebody's coming and pitching robotics or genomics or some big data stuff, whatever. So you have to do a lot of, um, you know, knowledge um, absorption, learning to be able to understand, to be able to even sound intelligent, to even ask the right questions, because every decision in the meeting is like a five to $10 million check that you are approving, you know, you're saying yes to. So I was going to 50, at least 50 different sites, um, you know, when I was at Menlo uh, throughout, uh, throughout the day or, or, you know, throughout the week. 
and I would uh, bookmark all of them on my browser and it would be the same learning sites like, you know, whether it's YouTube or MIT or Stanford or, you know, Coursera, Udacity, Udemy, Pluralsight, right? And then I, every time that I want to invest in a particular sector or a particular company, you know, you do a lot of Google search, you get all this, you know, 50, 100 different links. And I, I was finding that process super, um, uh, you know, difficult, very unwieldy. I was just feeling that there has to be a better way because I can't be doing this. It felt, felt like a groundhog day. Like every day is like the same drill, the same drill. Okay, now we're investing this company, uh, looking at this company. Okay, let's do Google search. Here comes 20 links. Go to this 20 links, register at every place, bookmark it, find some good content, copy and paste that link, send it to my partners, ask them what, what do they think. Oh, like there has to be an app for it. <laughs> there's an app for everything. There's an app for dating. There's an app for music. There's an app for entertainment. How come there's no app for this? Uh, you know, and yeah. um, uh, you know, we are not required uh, as as a VC to kind of we, we sit in the office even at that time just for meetings. Otherwise, there's nothing much. There's nothing going on in the office. So generally, I'm like out on the road, uh, picking up my daughter from the school uh, and things like that. Uh, you know, life is pretty good as a venture capitalist, actually. <laughs> so you know, a lot of uh, that's great <laughs> flexibility. You know, baked in. And so I wanted something mobile first, first of all, because I'm not like lugged uh, to my laptop all the time. Like I'm, if I'm sitting in the car 30 minutes waiting for my daughter to finish her practice or something, a sports practice or something, I said like, I want to just go through the phone like and scroll it like I do my Facebook feed and my LinkedIn feed and my Instagram feed. But why can't I get something very specific to my meeting tomorrow or my topic that I absolutely want to get better at so that I can do my work better. So yeah, that's that's basically the founding story where I went to one Monday, you know, like in most venture capital firm, Monday morning is a partner's meeting where you go and pitch ideas or, or uh, you know, the, the sector that you want to fund in. And I went to the partner's meeting and said, look, I'm planning to quit <laughs> because uh, we have this really cool idea. I'm very excited about it and I'm going to build it. And like my partners were like, um, they, they, they thought that I'm, I'm like gone crazy, you know, because most people after doing all the work in real operating companies and, you know, they, they have a good life to live as a venture capitalist. And here I am like saying, oh, I'm going to go back into the basement and again, put my hands dirty in building something. But I said, look, this is something, a problem that is big enough. And it is daily problem uh, to 2 billion people because, you know, I'm a knowledge worker and there are 2 billion knowledge workers. And, you know, if I'm facing this problem, I'm sure everybody's facing this problem. It's only getting worse because the number of uh, in content and information and knowledge and learning sources is just, you know, I mean, it's going through the roof. It's like exponentially growing. So, so anyway, so that was, a, you know, a good start uh, to, to go and start building something. I think it's really funny how often complex tech companies, their narrative boils down to something as simple as somebody saying, I needed something, it didn't exist, so I made it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the best trigger because I think the frustration is the best trigger. I've realized that when you get frustrated about something, right, whether paying your cable TV bills, and I'm sure somebody hated cable TV bills and then invented the OTT model <laughs> right, over the top, right, and bypassed that. Yeah, I mean, that's where uh, Roku and some of those companies were born. So, yeah, I think uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, when you feel pain, uh, that's the best opportunity to, fi to fix it with a, with a real product. You mentioned some of these tech companies and our expectations for the technology we use is greatly shaped by the tech we use every day, right? You mentioned scrolling on Facebook. 
Yeah. The likes of Google, Netflix, Spotify, how simple and easy the kind of user interface is. Yeah. So we demand the same quality, and we should demand the same quality of experience from the technology we use at work, right? How have you guys learned from successful tech companies to try to meet those high standards we have for the technology we use? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think um, <clears throat> people's uh, expectation is pure, is absolutely based on now consumer grade. So that is this uh, big trend of consumerization of the enterprise. The old enterprise apps that were written in the la past 10 years or 20 years are really terrible. You know, people hate it. I mean, there, there's a reason why adoption is a huge problem uh, in enterprise for any new software, because if that software was written from that enterprise mindset, the users are not going to adopt. I'm sure it, the uh, there's a brighter side to enterprise grade. What it means is, you know, your security has to be very high, you know, your scalability and all that, and your ability to integrate with other enterprise applications. So there is some gold standard to the word enterprise grade, but there is also an as much importance to have another gold standard, which is consumer grade. And consumer grade is actually more as much important or probably more important uh, as enterprise grade. Right? Because if something is not consumer grade, the users are not going to adopt it. And uh, we are seeing that problem all the time. So, and one of the best way to do a consumer grade grade app is to start with mobile first, because you know then you have to make the mobile app like you know your Spotify uh, or your Netflix or any of those mobile apps, uh, and your uh, real estate is very limited on a mobile phone. So automatically the constraints make you you know think like a consumer and a user and you're not like putting in a big screen and putting in like this 25 different options and choices that you see in a typical enterprise software you see there's so many menus and labels people don't know what to do so um i think uh, the more and more there is an adoption of this consumer apps uh, there is going to be a lot of pressure on enterprise companies uh, to build their app uh, with with consumer grade, and I think the UX is becoming better and better. Uh, we are of the belief that uh, internally that you know that should be no UX. The best UX is the no UX because you basically get you know the UX out of the way because UX is just a scaffolding to get you what you want. Right? And if you can surface uh, what the user wants with minimum or no UX, that's the ideal standard. So one of the best UX that will happen on mobile and web is, you know, I'm a big believer in the voice interface, right? Like Alexa or something like that. And it becomes, you know, speaking with uh, your app uh, is as natural as like I'm speaking with you, right? So, you know, if I have a question, I will just ask, hey, Simon, uh, what do you think about this? And like, you know, and you'll answer, uh, our apps will get there with the with the voice recognition text to speech um, and ai machine learning i mean how much is alexa and uh, siri is getting better uh, we are going to get learning also there where you know you can just talk to the app like a like a human being the way you describe technology at its most effective reminds me of the way my dad described uh, referees of a soccer game it's like the best referee you don't know he's even there right he's just everything is everything is seamless right yeah and even in learning right we say this that the best learning experience is that learning is invisible right and it is so much embedded into the work that you don't even know that you are learning you are trying to do a task and you were yeah. working and the work apps gave you enough ability 
to do and perform the task and the learning just happened naturally. And that's why we are a big believer in this learning in the flow of work. And we started that work almost two years back before the market realized. And then Josh Burson wrote a big article after we we built stuff and showed him. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's another big interface, right? The UX has to go away from, uh, I, I can envision that, you know, in the next couple of years, uh, there's, there will be no need for a web app, right? There's no need for a dedicated web app. You have mobile, obviously, that's going to be important because, you know, you'll still be traveling, you'll still be commuting or something. But the rest of the things, when you are on your laptop uh, doing any work, the learning is getting embedded like how we have it right inside Microsoft Teams and Office 365 and ServiceNow and Salesforce and uh, all those different applications uh, so that you never feel like I would do separately this learning. You know, it's just part of life. So speaking about what you're talking about, you guys have built at EdCast, and a lot of people hear EdCast and think learning experience platform, and I know you guys consider yourselves a knowledge cloud. Can you explain what that means to you? <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we coined the term knowledge cloud because uh, when we started EdCast, we had a problem explaining what is EdCast. You know, because it started with a pain point and we said, okay, right, we're going to bring all this content here. We have this recommendation. You'll be able to follow people. You will be able to learn from subject matter experts. You'll be able to put your tested knowledge. So there's all these great ideas you throw into this, but then you have always a challenge how to explain it now, right? And so yeah. the first term that we came up with, we said, okay, well, you always need like this Hollywood style, you know, metaphor that, uh, you know, Indiana Jones meets, uh, you know, Back to the Future, something like that, right? The pitch, the pitch yeah, metaphor. The pitch, yeah. Right. So we said, well, we, it's like Netflix of learning. And that was, we were the first one in the industry to coin that. Now many, many companies in the learning space have copied it, but Josh uh, Burson, he attributes us that we were the first one. I wrote an article on TechCrunch about it. So that was one. Second, I felt that, um, you know, uh, it is, we are in a knowledge economy, uh, you know, as a, where we are today. And uh, all this learning is, um, is basically a form of knowledge. Okay. It's a short form because we were reinventing kind of even the definition of what learning is because, you know, five, five and a half, six years back when we started and I was uh, talking to people in the learning space, I continuously hear learning means like a course and an assessment, course assessment and Mm -hmm. credential. And I was like, no, guys, uh, you know, I have been doing learning all my life, but I never think in terms of a course assessment and credential. I'm not driven by getting the next certificate. I'm not driven by writing an exam. I'm not driven by taking a long course. I do learn, but I learn from podcast. I learn from reading an article. I learn from watching a video. So I did not want to use the word learning because people had such a narrow definition of learning. And and anytime you uttered the word learning, people said, oh, so you are another LMS. I'm like, no, we're not an LMS. We're far away from it. Uh, so I said, okay, learning word, the word learning has so much baggage associated yeah. with it about the format of learning and the type of product category, which is LMS. So I said, we're going to stay away from it. Uh, we, what we are re, in, uh, reimagining learning is that any form of content, if you consume, and if it helps you to do your work better, then it is learning. And that form of content is basically a knowledge. So, you know, the, the meta terminology is content. A content can be an entertainment content or a knowledge content. Then a knowledge content can be a micro content or a macro content. 
if mm-hmm. the knowledge content has a formal uh, pedagogy then it could become learning in 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 the traditional word of learning right so the umbrella word that we we settled on is knowledge and then we said look what we are really doing is that we are uh, putting all the knowledge into the cloud because you know mobile and web they are all just touch points right but ultimately where is all this stuff sitting is in the cloud and um, there is a sales cloud there is a marketing cloud there is a service cloud then there is a knowledge cloud that is needed so that was the the pattern and thinking behind saying that in the knowledge economy every company and every individual every organization needs a knowledge cloud which is one place in the cloud where there's a big brain that is aggregating every single form of knowledge and learning content across internal external subject matter expert sources and then you point your device to that cloud right so you could have anything you could be pointing your salesforce you could be pointing your microsoft teams you could be pointing your mobile app or your web app uh, so so that was the the genesis of the word knowledge cloud and we said edcast is the ai powered knowledge cloud and that was i mean we had to create a category because we, you know we did not fit into an existing category and people tried to fit us into an lms category which we were not and we didn't want to offend the lms guys by saying we are competing because we are always partnering with them uh, and looking at lms as a good content source so you know just like most innovative companies has to do in the technology space is to create a category so we created a category of knowledge cloud and we are the only player in the, in that category then 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 Josh wrote a big article a couple of years later after we started and he invented uh, the three letter acronym of learning experience platform and we said yeah sure but still lxp is learning we are a knowledge cloud which is a much bigger umbrella and our vision is much bigger than an lxp because we do cover even knowledge management like many of our clients actually use edcast more as an intelligent knowledge management uh, than even learning they're just using it as a curation and a knowledge platform not just like the traditional you know assign it and, and do this assessment type of learning so so that's the differentiation between uh, a knowledge cloud and what an lxp is you mentioned ai and you mentioned uh, machine learning and and some people in lnd are kind of concerned that you know if ai and machine learning ranks and recommends content in context that that kind of eliminates some of what traditional responsibilities of L&D teams were in some ways. And there's no question that experience platforms have evolved the role of L&D. But how do you address those fears and what do you see as the kind of L&D, the, the function of L&D going forward here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um well, I think the the role of L&D is is continuing to rapidly evolve uh, given the pace of how new technology comes in and in just in any sector not just in L&D right as new technology gets in uh, some of the traditional roles disappear and uh, the new roles appear right so it's mm-hmm. not that um, you know there is a there is a threat there uh, what ai and machine learning brings from a level of recommendation and personalization no human being can do it because you know the 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 level of complexity and the processing power uh, i mean in our human brain we have what about 100 billion neurons uh, that's what we have i mean a, a computer on the cloud right can have like uh, 10x more neurons to fire so obviously it's proven that uh, you know machines can process data and analyze data faster than a human brain right yep. and uh, and the amount of data and the amount of content that you have to process and personalize and and is just impossible without without ai ml so that is given it's going to get better and better obviously we're not there yet in terms of uh, certain things uh, the human brain can curate better than machines today so 
Uh, I would put it like, you know, that the 95%, you can get it machine curated pretty well. Like, let's say you have a, a thousand pieces of uh, content and the problem you're trying to solve is that, you know, which of this thousand pieces of content is like better suited for me as a user. And let's say I want to learn robotics, right? What the um, what the today's uh, technology advancement in AI and ML can do is up to 95%, it can bring down like, let's say of that thousand pieces, it'll bring it down to like, here is 100, okay? Or, or maybe 50, right? And uh, at least you'll be able to get rid of the, the balance, um, you know, 950. And that would, that machine will do that way faster than putting, uh, you know, 20 lab librarians with PhD in robotics. That's a waste of putting 20 people's time going through 950 pieces of content, right? But the yeah. balance, the 50 that is left, <coughs> excuse me, the, that, is a, that is a role for human curation. Uh, and that humans can do better and say, okay, of this 50, you know, this five really looks like, you know, better for this type and uh, this level and things like that. Today, we have a very good way of kind of extracting metadata and understanding uh, what the content is about. But where machine learning is still not evolved is the ability to find the level at which the content is because it's very, very complex and subjective. You know, uh, the algorithm can say that this robotics video is at a beginner level, but it could be beginner level for you uh, or for me, let's say, and it might be an intermediate level for you, Simon. Right? Mm -hmm. And there are so many nuances there. So I think uh, that still has to be evolved. But uh, so that's where the L&D, I think, role is to answer your question is that um, there is a lot of uh, opportunity for curators in the L&D department now. Uh, instead of being the curriculum uh, creators uh, or creation of content, there is so much content out there from every content provider companies in the world that uh, L&D uh, uh, teams can be a great curator and they know their audience and they will say, well, you know, the machine has already curated this much. Now let me take this 50 pieces of content and organize them based on my audience. Hey, these guys are just brand new to robotics. So these are really robotics for business people versus robotics for engineers. Robotics for engineers, you can assume that those engineers have certain level of engineering background and I don't have to teach them the basics. Like they will get bored if I ask, if I show them a video, what is robotics? Like, come on, man, like move on. Right. But, you know, if you are showing to a bunch of executives who are non-technology, they would want to start from there. So I think there is a role for that. And I think that role will remain for the next few years until ML, you know, progresses to a certain level. And then there is a role for, you know, becoming a coach. I think there is still always going to be a role for a coach, no matter what, right? Because um, technology will make the content creation, curation better and personalization. But ultimately, that is a human interaction that is needed about coaching, uh, being a coach, just like not actually teaching the content, but at least like, you know, organizing that in the, in the right way so that, you know, I can be uh, your coach or you can be my coach. So there are a lot of those new roles that are emerging. What you're talking about there sounds very much like culture, right? Yeah. Learning happens when there's a, you know, a dynamic and uh, effective learning culture in an organization. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And I mean, there are a bunch of other roles that is also emerging um, in L&D. And one uh, big role is being a data scientist. Right? Mm. Um, because everything is becoming so much data driven. 
And yeah. uh, I think uh, L&D people will have to upskill themselves. I mean, as much as they're responsible for their people's upskilling, they have to upskill themselves. Yep. Learning how curation works, how to be a better curator, how to be a better coach, but how to be a better at data science. And the more they are able to understand the behavioral patterns, the consumption patterns, the learning patterns, and they are able to make sense of their insights and then make data-driven decision to do better data-driven learning for bringing the capability development. Because ultimately, L&D is, I think their, their number one uh, responsibility and mission is to increase the capacity and the capability of the enterprise. Right? And they can only uh, expand their capability by being data-driven. And today, uh, you know, just with LMS, and if they don't have an LXP, they have very little data. They, you know, they're only looking at what people did the course completion. Yep. <laughs> That's just like scratching the surface. Like course completion doesn't mean anything. The only reason I completed the course because I was required to do it, and otherwise you're gonna send put me into some you know uh, nasty email or a list and 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 complain to my <laughs> manager, right? So it's all coursing and threatening and all that stuff. That's not learning. Right. No. So I think the LXP, I mean, our customers are telling us that the um, like the amount of data that we are generating today at a lot of our customers is literally in terabytes or even in petabytes. It's wow. mind blowing amount of data. Now, we have a data lake and then we have a BI tool where we give you some heat maps and graphs and charts and things like that. But, um, you know, there is a limit to how much we can do uh, because an enterprise uh, company uh, can do much better the job than us because what they could do is that they can take our data and we make our data available as an API feed to them. If they can mash that data with a lot of other stuff that they have, and some of my customers have shown me that, I was mind-blowing. Like, seriously, I was, like, blown away. They showed me that they took the AdCast data they took some workday data. They took some other platform data about you know the activity that the person does, and they are able to truly create a predictive modeling. And you know the best thing about data analytics is you know is that not not just the best thing. I mean that's the future. The future of data is that it has to help us with prediction. Right? Mm -hmm. And you know patterns does help you with a lot of good prediction. And one of my customers showed me that, look, uh, Carl, uh, with your uh, AdCast data by mashing it with a couple other data points, we have built a model where we can predict which person in our organization is going to leave, okay, attrition. So <laughs> they can, even the person may not know it, right? Like, <laughs> that employee doesn't know that he or she is planning to leave in six months, but the model is predicting that this person is going to leave the organization six months. So be prepared. Either do something about it to make this person happy because yeah. he is disengaged or start planning a replacement because you're going to get a resignation letter in six months. Right? It's, it's the kind of stuff. And, and they, by the way, it's not like they said that, you know, this predictive model is, and by the way, I asked them the, the, the uh, obvious question. And I said, how much of that has really turned out to be true? And they said, it's quite accurate. <laughs> so, yeah. so machines know things that, uh, I mean, there was a, this movie, right? That social dilemma. I don't know if you watched that documentary, right? Um, yeah, I have, yeah. So, I mean, the machines, uh, once they have so much data, uh, they sometimes know more about us than we know about ourselves. Now, it is scary. and yep. it, it can be dangerous in some situation, <clears throat> but in many situations, it is good because 
you know, uh, one of the things, one of the skills that I, I value extremely high in people is the self-awareness skill. Uh-huh. Right. And, yep. you know, when, when people don't have many people lack that, that skill of self-awareness and, um, and sometimes this data models can give you something that will compensate for it. Yeah. I'm blown away by that. Like you said, it's mind blowing that data can get so sophisticated that it starts not just to react to behavior, but to drive behavior, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is bananas. Changing directions a little bit, the, the World Economic Forum has designated you guys a technology pioneer and made you guys a part of the forum's strategic intelligence ecosystem. What does that mean for, to you guys? And what kind of a responsibility does that bring? Yeah, thank you uh, for asking that. Well, uh, so, you know, WEF is an amazing organization. I have um, attended uh, Davos since 2011, uh, no, 2012, when I worked at the White House. Uh, it was my first uh, interaction uh, to, to Davos, and I was kind of really amazed at the quality of people and the quality of research uh, that they bring every year. Uh, and even outside of Davos, they, they run some some fantastic events and research. Uh, the tech pioneer is a is kind of like an Oscar of tech. <laughs> it's very exclusive. You know, they have a very high bar. There's like a committee of eighteen uh, big uh, CTOs and uh, of big companies, and so so we are honored. Uh, you know, to be to receiving that award, and it, it gives us a, a two year you know, full membership into the World Economic Forum, which otherwise is super expensive for even company of our size to to uh, to get that membership, and it, it gives us a seat on the table on driving a number of initiatives that WEF and and WEF has a fantastic. Um, uh, initiative on reskilling. In fact, uh, they launched a whole theme called Reskilling Revolution. Uh, they uh, uh, they have done lots of research and they have really put upskilling and reskilling on the top of the agenda for the world leaders, both the CEOs of Fortune 500, uh, Fortune 1000 companies, as well as for the heads of the government. And they are actively promoting uh, or in, uh, encouraging all these great, all these big leaders that look, if you don't invest in upskilling, reskilling, you know your companies or your economies are not going to work, right? So they have really brought that problem in the forefront with with all the research. So you know the jobs report, the the skills gap report, and all of that, and uh, and because of that, they've also started a number of roundtables and initiatives and forums uh, and different work groups. Uh, engaging governments, engaging Fortune uh, 1000 companies who are their members in defining a number of different pieces of the puzzle, like, you know, how are we going to have a common language around taxonomy and ontologies of skills, right? How are we going to have a common language around, uh, you know, skills um, uh, uh, transcript and, and things like that? Uh, how we, an ecosystem can come together in terms of, you know, governments and organizations. So we are part of many of that forum and helping drive that agenda coming in from the technology side. There's a lot of great people on those forums who are coming more from the practitioner side. Uh, okay. So it's it's very, uh, very helpful to be able to drive that agenda at that uh, top level, because I think we are working with the L&D community. Uh, but that's uh, sometimes the L&D folks that we are working with at uh, Fortune 1000 companies, they're not getting the kind of support that they need from their executive management. Um, and, uh, you know, now with this uh, World Economic Forum, we can engage the executive management, get it to the CEO agenda, and then they can drive that, um, you know, the the ability to to adopt or drive adoption uh, with that L&D community. Yeah, it's a great honor. 
Yep. For those listening who are are in a company who has done things kind of in a traditional manner when it comes to L&D, right? We, we, you talked earlier about the shift from enterprise grade to consumer grade, right? And that's, very, that's reflective of the shift from management-focused technology to experience-focused technology, right? Shifting it to the learner, right? If you're part of an organization who's considering that shift and listening to you today and, and is kind of inspired and thinking, okay, we need to start moving that direction, but that sometimes, you know, the gap is, is big between what we did and what we do, and that the stakes are very high, right, when it comes to investments and things like that. What advice would you give to those companies looking to move from what we did towards what we do now? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, a lot of people are um, struggling there, and uh, we interact with uh, a lot of um, Fortune 1000 companies, and we find that uh, they are struggling. They um, where they are versus where they want to go. And, you know, the, the gap is big. And uh, even for them to socialize that internally, getting all the support, getting all the um, approvals or getting the, um, uh, you know, the level of endorsement um, that is needed is very difficult. I think the first step to start is to obviously always uh, have a very good analysis of where you are today. And, um, you know, we did a, a research um, as you know, we published that early this year called the LHI, the Learning Health Index. So yeah. we created and it's an 85 page report uh, by researching 104 companies. And uh, we uh, have like um, 12 dimensions in which we would measure the health of an organization in terms of their learning capability, learning experience, learning tools, learning maturity. Uh, so this is a nice framework uh, for any organization to kind of uh, think in those uh, dimensions and uh, uh, kind of self-rating, right? You know, self-rate yourself uh, or mm -hmm. even ask your own employees to say, uh, I mean, set out a survey and, and we've done help, we've helped our customer partners or customers or prospects to do it, but even they can do it themselves. They can take our LHI report, they can look at all the parameters and you can just send out a simple Google survey to your employees. Uh, you don't have to send it out to your all, if you have 10,000 employees, just just do a sample size of even a thousand people, right? And uh, I, if I was an L&D person, you know, I would be very curious to know what my people think, where we are on all these 12 dimensions. And then we are giving them a benchmark to compare and say, look, this 104 companies, the average benchmark score is 64 out of 100. So mm -hmm. if you are doing, you know, in the 60s, you are in the average, so that's good. You know, if you're doing below 60, you, you got a problem. And if you're doing above 64, 65, then, then you're doing good, but you still have 100, you know, so you don't have to yeah. be pleasant, right? Uh, and the reason we got, I mean, partly it, the, the average score that came out to be 64, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense because companies are kind of halfway through, they have some stuff, but not the entire, you know, we are still far away as an as a stage and ecosystem of where we all are as an industry. There's a lot to to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that is the starting point. And um, you know, today the best way to get any support from anybody uh, internally for any initiative is to be data driven. Right? 
uh, without data, you're not going to get support from your bosses or from your managers or your CFO is not going to write a, you know, approve your budget. So I think uh, we thought that uh, this data driven metrics and everybody needs a benchmark because uh, sometimes some people are living in this uh, utopian uh, world of, you know, whatever Dunning-Kruger effect of thinking that ah, everything's great. We do fantastic learning. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, some organizations are living in that world, right? Some organizations yeah. are living in the other extreme by saying, oh, you know, we're like, uh, we got completely screwed up. And uh, so, you know, everybody's looking for a benchmark. What is the benchmark? And now that we have established, we have a benchmark, which is data driven, and we're going to continue to do this study every year. You know, so we're just kicking off, by the way, um, a study for 2021. So we are inviting organizations to participate in the study. Uh, so we'll do again uh, 105, 110, maybe 200 organizations, and um, you know we'll publish that. So that's the easiest way to to participate in a research. Um, we don't publish an individual company score. Obviously, that's that's confidential. Uh, we're not the glass door who's gonna make you look bad in the public <laughs> website by saying shame you. Look, shame on you. Your, your LHI score is only 22 compared to <laughs> of 64. You are so bad. And then uh, uh, that's very slimy. Then you go out and then sell your product. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for bashing Glassdoor, but I mean, I get, <laughs> get Glassdoor salespeople calling me about, um, you know, signing up for an account. Anyway, so uh, what we do is that we keep the individual score uh, low, uh, private, confidential. We yep. publish the benchmark score every year and say, hey, 2021, maybe the benchmark has gone up from 64 to 72. Now that's great news. So as an industry, we are making progress, but then you also have to, uh, you know, keep pace with it. It's like keep, mm -hmm. keep up with the Jones, um, and uh, this gives you a fantastic way to rally <clears throat> your team, your people, your CFO, your CEO, and say that look, we have a we have to achieve here. So I think that's a that's a that's a starting point. Research and data is always the best place to start. Fantastic. Well, look, I have learned a ton just talking to you today, and uh, you've taken a lot of time on your Sunday afternoon to, to chat with me, and I just I really appreciate it, really excited by the things you guys have going on, and uh, excited to see what's coming down the pipeline in the future for EdCast, and uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Well, thanks, Simon. All your questions were very insightful, and so it was definitely a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, anytime we'll be happy to, to reconnect, uh, so thank you. Thanks, Carl. Really appreciate it. Take care. That was Carl Mehta. Again, super appreciative of the time Carl took and the candor of his responses. I got a ton out of the exchange and I have a feeling you guys will too. As always, anything of interest, I am popping into the show notes. Thank you guys for taking the time to listen. Take care and all the best.